Okay, welcome to Idea Market Podcast. I'm here with Mike Elias, CEO of Idea Market. We are joined by Christian K. Meyer, the managing partner at the blockchain venture Sustany Capital. So, Christian, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So, as a way to avoid the typical tell us about yourself question, uh, instead of telling us about yourself, if you were to design a course, to transform people into yourself, what would that course look like, Christian? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Well, I probably would give them my favorite book that I'm reading a few times a year. It's called Your Suspicious Mind. It's essentially um, a dumbed-down version of critical thinking. So I try as much as I can to remind myself that the, the whole exercise of being alive is to just make better mistakes the next day. I don't try, ever try to believe in anything. I try to have a thesis that's rooted in reality and that I can improve, improve upon. And that's how I kind of approached my life since I was a little child. So that will be the book. Read the book a couple of times <laughs> and that will give you a good idea of how I approach the topic of life. So do you, that course would be based around basically making mistakes. Do you see that as different from failure and failing? Well, you, you want to make mistakes that are based on a thesis, right? So this way you got a learning experience. For me, the past has, past has two objectives. One is you have um, pleasant memories. The other one is learning experiences. Other than that, I, I flush everything down like the proverbial toilet, which is funny enough, um, that's the, a term that Warren Buffett uses that I have been using since I was a little child since I was 14 years old. It's like, it's, it's the toilet memory. There's only so many things that are worth remembering and either they're worth remembering because it made you a better person or it reminded you not to do certain things or it's just a pleasant memory you can go back to, but or, everything else is essentially cluttered. I'm interested in the idea of dumbing down critical thinking. I'm wondering if you could, you know, give a dumbed down version of this dumbed down version? What's, <laughs> well, how do you dumb down critical thinking? How do you dumb down critical thinking? Well, you, you want to start with the assumption that you're wrong. And uh, then you want to uh, find evidence uh, for why you're wrong, right? And any given day. So that's the reason why when, whenever I actually publish stuff, the only reason why I publish it is not why, uh, because I want people to like it. I want people to tell me where I'm wrong so I can make better mistakes tomorrow. That's the only reason. It's the only approach to that. That's why all of my articles where I can have this disclaimer on the bottom, hey, uh, whatever you're reading uh, right now, it might change uh, if I can change it here um, because I have better insights in the meantime. So don't don't take it as the end-all, be-all. And more importantly, that's how I kind of felt the first time when I kind of quote unquote discovered the World Wide Web when it was still AOL and there was no Windows version of AOL and there was just a basic version, like literally in for basic of AOL. I thought, wow, that's cool. It's like I, I, we can all together like make mistakes and uh, revise them as we go along. So every time I go back to this, it's better than it was before. And <laughs> that's the one thing that really, really has bothered me for a very long time about the web. Because if you think about it, when you search something, a lot of the, your searches, quote unquote, are really recollection, right? You can't really search for something you've never heard about. 
and you really most of the time recollect something. So to me, I thought this was, would be a utility where I can improve myself. So I search something next time I'll, I'll search it again. I find that plus something better, right? So as in that's the way we're actually learning, right? You have a certain plateau that you're on, you have a certain vocabulary um, that you have. And based on that, you, you can have better experiences, better explanations and um, usually you're going to be more successful in life as a consequence or by it. Success is really kind of an externality of doing the right thing in a way. When you're writing online for the purpose of discovering uh, flaws and inviting people to help you improve your uh, perspective on things, mm-hmm. to what extent do you intentionally err or risk erring? Do you make your arguments like as tight as you can and then invite criticism or do you say things that really might be kind of risky and flimsy like where do you draw that line um i'll give you my my lawyer answer it depends i mean the the one line i i think that's probably very provocative in in our kind of field is the the statement that i'm still not convinced that we need any cryptocurrencies whatsoever all right. uh, my my thesis is that the number of cryptocurrencies might be uh, that we need is somewhere between zero and one, and thus far I haven't actually gotten like good feedback and data that convince me of the other side. Right now, when you when you say cryptocurrency, you're are you referring specifically to the currency use case, or do you mean blockchains as a whole? No, I uh, refer specifically to a new unit of account because that's actually what's signaling it, right? Because, I mean, a token is really just um, a standardized smart contract. Um, The coin is a a standardized smart contract, but then it's the native version on a chain. But the larger point here is that, um, A, uh, it's software, right? So, and it's software that's built on open source, so it's, it's going to change, right? So that's why there's to, to come up with standardizations around that is kind of a fool's errand in a way anyway. So this is the way we're using it today. And in, in terms of currencies, that's kind of a one and a half hour talk I give. But to, to simplify that, um, the default medium of exchange has been bytes for decades. That's true for Bitcoin. That, that's true for Ether. That's true for the US dollar. That's true for for the yen, right? So other discussions around that from a technology perspective are about the same as discussing what the colors of your bytes are. It's it's utterly irrelevant, right? And same with the unit of account, right? So the unit of account for Bitcoin is, is the US dollar if you look at your wallet. So that so that's another very provocative thing to say, and in, in specifically if you're talking to a Bitcoin maxi who thinks that the unit of account will be lowercase b Bitcoin, the mining reward, which um, there is in my mind there has has never been a thesis that would support that implementation because usually it's it's not even a, um, a thesis in the sense that no one actually puts it in a way that you can falsify because it's usually a half complete sentence as in blockchain or Bitcoin adoption, um, like f- for for what use case by who, right? So th- there, it's a very nuanced answer. 
and to the extent um, that people need to live in the real world, unfortunately, the real world evolves around real world assets and you, you cannot eat a virtual banana. So at some point in time, you have to interact with the real world. So the easiest thing in my mind is simply let's observe what's true for the real world right now. And then let's make a line for the next five, 10 years. That's what we typically do, work backwards from there and see based on the current trajectory where that line may take us and then try to falsify that thesis. So to simplify this massively, the, the primary use cases of um, money, quote unquote, today is simply lending and spending, which, which the lending part being the much larger use case. The function, which is different, is simply that of language. So that's why I, I after having these discussions for more than a decade now, I, I came up with all this like very simple metaphors. Like if, if you stand with three people in front of a house and the first person thinks the house is worth a million dollars. The second person thinks the house is worth 1.25 million euros. The third person thinks this house is worth 20 million pesos. We're talking about the same real world asset. So it's just something that these individuals um, do in their head, which tells you that money is really just language. So, um, so once you realize that, if you introduce a second person in that scenario, let's say the owner of the house, and this this house happens to be in Tajikistan, which is a real country, um, and the owner wants tsunamis, which is the currency of Tajikistan, then the person that is interested in buying this house has to first agree with that owner of the house, A, what language of value do we want to speak? And maybe he agrees to the US dollar and maybe he insists on, on wanting some monies. And then once you do that, you have to find the right medium of exchange that makes sense for the participants. So anyway, so the, the long story short is money is simply a contract and is a multifaceted contract as soon as it uh, is you interact with another person. Right. And before that, it's just the language of value in your head. And it's rather arbitrary and you choose it with either the technology that you're engaging with or via an agreement with the person that you're engaging with. I'll just add in there, I mean, in terms of, of cryptocurrencies, surely one of the key aspects is that we have we finally have an avoidance of the double spending problem. You know, these specific functions which are specific to blockchain technology, are you saying that these this isn't specific to the actual cryptocurrencies? Um, well, what we don't need is the intermediary, right? Because in principle, this will facilitate peer-to-peer um, -peer transactions. It's actually not quite as simple. And from a narrow technology perspective, it's actually not a peer-to-peer -peer transaction. But also maybe uh, one um, slight differentiation. So blockchain technology is really just a fancy encryption um, standard that existed um, a decade before Satoshi wrote the white paper. So he added the proof of work idea to this, which is even older, and that created the first blockchain. So we've been talking a lot about metaphors. You mentioned how wallets are a bad metaphor for what cryptocurrencies actually do, how blockchain transactions actually work, for example. And my favorite example of a mismatched metaphor right now is the metaphor of facts in knowledge. It implies this sort of granular certainty that defies the basis of philosophy of science. 
all knowledge is tentative. It's something that evolves. We do our best, but it's always sort of limited and constrained by uh, our knowledge at the time. And by basing our knowledge infrastructure off of fact checking, fact verification, we're kind of building in this lie of certainty into public discourse and then using that to censor dissenting opinions and to enforce a perspective that people don't want to accept because they had no choice in it. They had no opportunity to express their own opinions and their own evidence and things like that. So even so this fact metaphor has two major problems. One, it doesn't really exist. We're kind of saying that certain things are close enough to consider uh, unquestionable for now. And then that gap, that, that judgment call that someone makes, we're then trying to impose on everyone else. So it's impossible on the first leg and immoral to enforce on the second. Like the best case scenario, the best kinds of facts that we could possibly get would immediately lead to some form of censorship or uh, impediment to free speech, free, free expression. And even if they're real, they won't land because people won't trust that sort of party that uh, tries to impose facts in this way. Um, so one of the reasons we built Idea Market is because risk management is a much more well-tuned metaphor for knowledge management. That uh, if you're familiar with Pascal's wager, sure. the idea that, yeah, of course. So like Pascal's wager is uh, Blaise Pascal's argument for believing in God, that if you're right and he's there, you go to heaven. And if mm -hmm. you're, uh, if you believe in God and he's not there, nothing really happens. Mm -hmm. But if you, uh, don't believe in God and he's there, you go to hell. And if you don't believe in God and you're right, he's not there, then nothing happens. So from a risk management standpoint, uh, you're, it, it's lower, lower risk and higher reward to believe in God. And all, you know, truth kind of reality has, has this, uh, built in. There's a mean to which markets revert. There's a mean to which uh, reality reverts. Like the history of culture is sort of like a, a trading channel in that way that we go through like these waves of denial and compensation and denial and compensation. And they kind of arrive at something until something breaks. So in any sense, I wanted to mention that and see what your thoughts are. And if there are any parallels in, uh, that come to mind. Well, what comes to mind immediately is the stand-up comedian that I saw probably 20 years ago, because obviously Uh, people believe in very different gods, right? There's uh, an excess of like 3,000 different deities that, that you could subscribe to. And then there's about the same variations within different uh, belief systems. There's like a couple of hundred, and some people would argue a couple of thousand variations of Christianity that people subscribe to. Oh yeah, to I did not mean to make a to make a <laughs> theological argument. Like no, the I got it. Focus no, of this. I, I just like the inspiration. So, yeah. so th this guy uh, then started to like uh, sketch out how he was living out Pascal's wager uh, in the context of there's potentially all these other gods out there. So he started rattling off all the things that he cannot eat all the things that he cannot do and how many times he has to pray so needless to say he had to forfeit a job a girlfriend and eating <laughs> that was kind of the the synopsis right 
But then overall, so I don't use ever a science ever as kind of a as a, a simple um, noun by itself. I, I just look at this from a um, schematics perspective as, and it's really the scientific method. And so the scientific method is, is, is just a, a, a tool set of certain um, procedures. So you put out a thesis and your job as the quote unquote scientist is then to disprove the thesis, right? And so the opposite, and that's typically what happens is people try to find proof for their thesis because uh, that's usually easier um, than the opposite in, in trying to disprove something. That's why there's good, good thesis and like gravity is a really good thesis because if you don't subscribe to it, uh, you, you will have a rude awakening once you jump off a, off a house uh, and, and don't subscribe to that idea of gravity. And even though gravity was only proven in, in physics uh, less than 20 years ago, I think it was like 14 years ago or something, I forgot. But it was really good, valuable thesis to hold uh, for simple survival in general. And also at the same point in time, if your philosophy uh, to, let's say, uh, driving motor vehicle is Jesus takes the wheel, then we probably shouldn't allow you to drive the vehicle, right? Because you're a danger to yourself and others, right? So there, there's good uh, theories to hold. And then there's theories that evolution will, will simply eradicate at the end of the day, right? So at some point in time, we stopped throwing virgins in a volcano to uh, calm down the god that was living uh, in that mountain because uh, we realized, oh, there are such things as volcanoes and there's no angry god in a mountain. And we stopped throwing fruit in the ocean because the belief in Poseidon kind of went away. So we, we stopped trying to calm him down while we were crossing the seas and so forth. So the point there being is that at the end of the day, um, reality has as a way of proving itself, right? By disproving anybody else who's trying to act against uh, facts, act, act act against reality. So that's why I always say my, my own uh, whole objective is simply to make better mistakes tomorrow, right? So to add to my thesis and uh, mostly to subtract to my thesis and, and then decide, okay, yeah, that, that was a thesis worth holding up until this point where I found counterfacts. And that's the only reason why you want to put out a thesis. So you, you don't want to necessarily defend the thesis. You kind of want to do the opposite. It's like, uh, please disprove me. That, that's, that's always my request. Please tell me that I'm wrong and how am I wrong, right? So, that, so I can adjust my thinking and accordingly then adjust my behavior. And uh, I don't know. Everybody actually does that, right? That's that's the reason why you can safely get out of bed in the morning because you use your feet and you assume that there's gravity. Right? So that's why the, this typical uh, hierarchy of needs that people subscribe to is actually wrong. So you got this hierarchy of needs that you need food and shelter and all these things, right? So the actual um, primitive that goes on the bottom is certainty. What I mean by that is, so if, if you're sitting right now there in your chair and uh, you want to get up, if you don't have certainty that the floor under you will hold you and you, you could fall, uh, fall through that floor, you're immobilized, right? So all of your energy is going to be spent figuring out how to survive, how to get out of that chair. And so this is a very trivial example, but the, this element of certainty is what people are 
are looking for. So, and that's also then reverting back all the way to uh, historical evidence. The, the the reason why we come up with all these explanation is because people do not like uncertainty. Right. So it it, it keeps them up. They want an explanation what happens after you die. Right. They, they want an explanation for everything. And the the thing here is, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at this, um, this particular gene pool is always enforced. So if I'm in Neanderthal, I'm walking through the prairies and I hear some rattling in the bushes and I think it's a saber tooth that's about to eat me and I run away, then this gene pool gets to survive. It's the false positive that gets to survive. If I'm a Neanderthal here rattling in the bush and I think it's just the wind and I walk at a leisurely pace and it was a saber tooth, that gene pool doesn't get to survive. So that's why you're constantly reinforcing the false positive. That's why you're seeing uh, figures in the clouds. It's it's overfitting, uh, even though there is no bunny in the cloud. It's just cloud with a random pattern or you see Jesus in a in a cheese sandwich and all these examples, right? The, this is just overfitting. It's, it's this type of pattern recognition that has a, had a lot of utility throughout history and it's in, in, uh, reinforced in um, our lizard brain, right? We have this like odd metaphor that in, now kind of has been disproven by um, neuroscience that we have like a lizard ba- brain living in a, 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 a couple of other brains, right? But that is the root stem. That that's really not not, not true from a physiological perspective. That's it, that's more a metaphor because your your brain is actually very very plastic uh has a lot of plasticity uh, plasticity yeah um so if one part uh, fails that currently um is occupied with um, directing your visual system you can actually train another part of your brain uh, brain to to take over these functions right Anyway, uh, long-winded answer of um, it's good to have a thesis and it's good to consistently try to dis- uh, like um, disprove that thesis. That's a good approach to interact re- with reality, right? The, the opposite uh, will always end up in a cul-de-sac, right? Because you can find proof for anything, obviously. You, you can prove, can prove, uh, find proof and um, other people asserting that there's no such thing as um, anthropomorphic global climate change, that the world is flat, that um, vaccines are some evil plan by governments to make everybody sterile or or whatever other notion you want to subscribe to, you can easily find evidence to that, right? Absolutely. And that, that brings up another key problem or challenge for the internet age when we have all this information and we have social support or the ability to get social support for any viewpoint how do you create or reward honesty how do you get people to pursue and prefer uh, an improvement in their understanding over validating a preference or adhering to a social group or following a trend or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, overall, I think we already see this is kind of organically happening because if you subscribe to reality, you're usually better off at the end of the day to simplify this massively. So you can measure these things on a, a country by country level. So in countries where uh, they are very concerned with um, deities and spend a lot of time on that, you, you can see the relative pro- uh, poverty to, towards countries where 
um, people stopped believing in invisible friends in the sky a long time ago and where, where this is basically not accepted behavior, right? So they will just prosper more. So that holds true on a, on a nation state level that holds true on an individual level, right? It comes back to, um, I, I can believe all I want that Jesus takes the wheel, but if I actually act accordingly, that has negative consequences that you don't uh, survive typically, right? Um, so to that extent, I, I think it will eventually take take care of itself. But the important part, I believe, is what we need to do more is just educate um, our youngest citizens in critical thinking, right? So that is not being taught today. So the, the, like to, you need to like learn to learn, actually. And you should never just be indoctrinated. That's what we're typically doing right now. So like in the US specifically, um, that was the hardest time for me to, to then and honestly answer certain questions during the naturalization process because I knew they wanted to hear things like Columbus discovered America, which no one in, in Europe thinks it's true. And I mean, it, it's it's kind of a running joke. So. Uh, and from from that perspective, you, you just have to adapt at that particular moment to society. But then there's all these other people in the country who truly think this is true and that's a historical fact or facts like what are the reasons that we start wars, right? So when there's indisputable evidence that you can just measure, see, observe and say, no, this was not the reason, like the, 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 this was definitely a, a made-up argument and there were other reasons why we did this right so so the point there being is if you allow people to be indoctrinated that's probably the only reason why you would still believe in something otherwise uh, i'd try as much as possible not to use the word at all i will always just say my, my thesis is that if i eat xyz um, i'm gonna be better off than than something else and uh, if you have good evidence to the contrary please please share that with me right and so at the end of the day you're going to be most successful if you install these particular filters because doing any given day you ignore 95 percent of the things that hit your senses out of necessity otherwise you would go mad but the way you're ignoring it is you're installing these filters uh, so that could be information it could be just noise around you you could be focusing on your heartbeat right now and so forth so and the point there being is so that how you process information is 100% depending on uh, your filters that you install. So if your parents install this filter into you that your invisible friend doesn't want you to allow uh, to say certain things, do certain things, you're going to start filtering it in this particular way. And that may or may not be helpful. Sometimes like it can be helpful regardless if it's nonsense, right? So you can decide, okay, I no longer want to eat meat, for example, because my invisible friend decides that's that's not uh, the right thing to do. And accidentally, you're better off health-wise, right? But that's accidentally, that's, that's not backed by reality. That just is a happenstance that coincides with that particular belief system. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the point about uh, deities and religions have been... Uh, used and abused both culturally in order to justify terrible things like wars and crusades and things like that. And they've also been abused on a local level for controlling people. They've been abused within a family for controlling people, controlling behavior and uh, justifying basic human types of irrational uh, 
behaviors just like uh, anything else has. Um, but I can attest, well, I've, I've had many, including right now, actually, personal experiences of the divine in some form or another. And I would argue that even for uh, atheists without the desire for or, or interest in that, that kind of thing, there is a, a particular, and you could even say secular benefit that God provides, the idea of God, of some higher power provides on a psychological basis. And that is given our limited awareness of our selves and our biases, pivoting, relying on or referring to some higher power gives an individual a third party observer to oneself in a certain way. It gives a person leverage to sit back and say, maybe I don't know everything about myself. Maybe I don't know some things that I'm wrong about. Maybe I can't see my character flaws. And maybe if I can humble myself or ask for guidance, there will be some curiosity space that opens up that allows me to see that. So even without any particular belief in God, I think humans can gain a certain humility and intellectual honesty and psychological health uh, just from the concept of a higher power, even without any of the other accoutrement and and cultural effects of of any you know various kinds. So I, I'm interested in that. It, yeah, so uh, I have a lot of problems with this term atheist. I think it's not needed. It's kind of like okay. saying uh, it's like. I, I don't I don't have anything against unicorns. I don't have anything against any other thing that people invent. So I'm not an e-unicornerist. I'm, I'm not an atheist. And to the extent uh, that you want to use that term, well, then everybody's an atheist, right? Because um, most people believe in one God, but not in the all the thousands of other gods on offer. So in respect to all of those, you're also an atheist, right? So you're, not, you're always an atheist in that regard. So it's kind of a useless term in that sense. And so, it, and actually, so one of um, the things that I studied is neurolinguistic programming. And um, in, in that, um, in this kind I of- I saw that on your LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, so. We talked about natural language programming last time. I kept thinking I was getting the wrong one. I said, NLP, uh, right, yeah, I remember neurolinguistics. I, I, stu yeah. I studied both. So I studied natural okay. language programming and I studied uh, neurolinguistic um, programming. So, but uh, there, there's a lot of interesting exercises uh, that you do um, depending on your teacher. But one of them is actually that you consciously pick these outside councils. And you, you, I mean, you, there's no no reason for you to to limit yourself to just a made up person. You can just take a person or a, a number of people from history that you respect and who had great ideas and who are still revered today, and their books and ideas are still being followed, right? So in my case, I I would pick someone like Christopher Hitchens and Einstein and and Gandhi and. Uh, I would process things that I say through their lens, right? And they are then my counsel. So uh, that to me is a, is a more useful approach, right? Because these people collected a lot of wisdom that has been validated by uh, other people throughout time that still hold truth today. So doing it this way is a little more deliberate than just creating like a vacuous um, idea of some spirit in the sky that, that may or may not frown about the, uh, things because you're more likely to then impose all the biases that you have been programmed with throughout 
all of your indoctrination by your environment, your your parents and your your teachers and so forth into that vague idea, rather than having a real person from history where you can simply pick up a book and and read about the ideas that this particular individual had and that have been then picked up and expanded upon by other individuals, right? So all uh, it's a typical thing of we're all standing on the shoulders of, of giants. We, we all. Um, benefit today. The reason that you and I are, are alive right now and didn't perish at age 30-something, 30, 30, I think the average life expectancy for most of human um, existence was something around 30, 34 years or something. So we're, uh, presumably all of us w- would be dead if there hasn't been, hadn't been scientific research and we proved things like germs and so forth that we should just do simple things in everyday life to ensure that we don't perish at this particular what we would now consider young age. And so ultimately it will always come back to what is what is the real scarcity? Well, the real scarcity is attention as measured in time. So, and that's um, ideally what you want to fight because every other thing at that point doesn't matter. If you perish, uh, it doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars in your account. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have 10 oceanfront properties. Um, you have no longer the opportunity to enjoy that. And maybe you subscribe to this idea uh, that while well, you lived a good and um, redeemed for life, and this is why your invisible friend allows you entrance into this magical place that will grant you eternal happiness. Uh, fine by me, but I, I think there's an outside chance that th- this is true simply because no one ever came back from a near-death experience and kind of refuted his prior belief and said, well, I thought it was Jesus Christ, but I came back and now I think it's Buddha, it's, it's Jehovah, it's something else, right? If, if someone ha- had done that, it would it give the, these ideas a little more credence, but uh, to my knowledge, this has, has never happened. Right. Yeah, I've never heard of anything like that either. One of uh, one of our earlier guests, Vinay Gupta, has an idea that I like, which is when you have a spiritual experience or a near-death experience or something like that, you kind of interpret it through your present mythical framework. Mm-hmm. Like in a, in a Jungian sense, we have like this, the collective unconscious and we each sort of have a, a cultural or, or personal framework through which we just kind of naturally receive things. And when Mm -hmm. we're presented with this sort of other world beyond the veil, we see it um, as, as we are in a, Mm -hmm. there's a sort of intersubjectivity um, that doesn't, that what that's more sort of dreamlike than, well, actually, frankly, you know, the physical world is, is super dreamlike. It's just, it's just more persistent and more Mm -hmm. like uh, what do you call it? There's, there's more, there's more like, quantum consensus or something but I'll, let, I'll talk about that later but uh yeah the the idea is it doesn't it doesn't necessarily force itself on you in the same way but you see it through your own lens so that that makes sense that people would come back and not change their mind after because they would have seen what they are prepared for in, in a right. certain respect um i love the idea of using historical figures and and past wise people as lenses through which to view the world, I think that's um, a, I think that indicates a really profound way of addressing knowledge, not as like a a pile of facts, but as a series of lenses that you can apply to interpret things. Because a lens won't remove anything 
or add anything to your environment. It will mm -hmm. just sort of change the prioritization and change the meaning and relationships. Yeah. And it, well, un unfortunately, so so we all have these pre-installed filters, right? So yeah. that were installed at a time where we were still very vulnerable. Well, what mom and dad told us was was the gospel. And I had kind of either the misfortune or the good luck that this didn't happen to me because uh, I simply didn't have, have I didn't have a father, and, and my mom didn't care. So. Uh, so I got to install all my own ideas, and most most of them originally came from classical literature that was available to me. So I would would read a book a day, and then eventually I got to this idea of well, one book a day is really not enough. I need to read two or three books in parallel. So that's what I usually did on one particular topic. And if you go back in history, you will find that. Um, all these people that we revere, they, they typically had this multitude of interests. That's why I'm absolutely opposed against um, like creating these artificial disciplines because we need to get rid of these as soon as possible. So there's no reason for any law school to exist anymore. And there's a lot of other things that we shouldn't be teaching, period, full stop. But the larger point there is you need to kind of teach people to interact with reality that is um, tomorrow, not uh, reality that was today or that, that is today or was yesterday, right? And if you go into um, the academia today and I have a lot of interaction with them, what they're teaching is uh, the reality that we used to know five years ago. And that holds true specifically in this country for the medical profession. 10 years after they leave medical school, and 90% of what they think uh, is state of the art or is true is actually false, has been disproven because uh, development in this space is now so rapid that, um, and you know this about our space, that it's super hard to keep up unless you educate yourself on a at least monthly but better weekly basis, right? And uh, so learning is a continuous. Um, pursuit, right? So there hasn't been a day in my life where I didn't spend at least an hour and typically five, six, seven, eight learning something, right? And and to me, it's it's an it's a dire need. If I don't uh, do this, it's like I can't sleep, and I, I I have to consume more information and add to that, right? So and uh, but one one actual good thing that i heard fairly recently yet again is you actually want to limit yourself probably to um, a subset of books that uh, actually provide you with a useful framework rather than trying to add nuances uh, on top of that right so it's better to embrace principles so if you um, have a set of books of like a hundred you want to reread those so there's books that I reread every year, and some of them I, I reread several times a year right? because of that, because uh, it, it's just like reinforcing this particular muscle, i.e. and critical thinking. Uh, I, like no one, like everybody else, I'm not immune to the, these fallacies. And, and once you get very simple example in literature that uh, clarify, okay, this particular idea happens because you programmed yourself to believe this is true. So, so you need to re-question that. So that's what I do on, on a daily basis. And I'm, 
I tend to get more provocative over time simply because some things I, I, I've thoroughly dismissed. And um, so that can be overwhelming to other people sometimes because I will stand up and I have a lot of good ammunition that I collected over the years uh, to a particular topic. So it's very hard then for a counterpart to defend that. And the other part is uh, that a lot of people simply lack the language tools. So English is my third language. And um, I still feel after being here for 20 years that I talk like a child, right? Because I, I still think that it, there should be a more nuanced language. But for, for most people, the, the vocabulary is so poor that they, that they actually can't defend certain ideas because they are simply missing the language. They, they will have very simple terms for, for the ideas that they, they can't differentiate, right? So that was something that occurred to me in that phone call earlier again. So people were using terms but didn't understand the nuances. And so specifically, we were talking about the development in technologies where you have a a language, a real world semantic language discussion in English, and then you try to con convert these concepts into software code. That is a very dangerous approach. If you don't understand things on a very simple semantic level, how can you translate those to meat space? It doesn't work, right? And that's unfortunately something where if you just out of um, high school start learning programming and maybe get a masters in cs or something or the computer science or something uh, you typically miss out on those nuances that other disciplines and hence my my issue of disciplines would have provided you right so i just naturally gravitated to a lot of different models of the world from from a literature's perspective right because that's one of my other um, kind of more useless degrees in hindsight uh, it's kind of valuable in the sense of uh, that it enables you storytelling and also enables you to think on multiple dimensions at, uh, at the same point in time right because there's very few things that are one-dimensional right a lot a lot of things are multi-dimensional and if you're missing one of these dimensions it's, it's going to be hard for you to interact with reality and it's going to be hard for you to provide solutions uh, for meat space. Right? One, one, one thing I want to bring in there, just as uh, I mean, this is something that this I, this problem of language is something I focused on in my uh, my postgraduate work a lot. So I mean, in relation to epistemology and this problem of finding truth, right? Uh, if the more abstract the topic, mm -hmm. the the less able we are to communicate. So two right. mechanics from across the world, if they know the terms needed for I don't know. A, carburetor a radiator etc they can communicate extremely efficiently to the point where you can get a car fixed but as you move into more abstract topics such as religion more subjective matters the the, the language barrier in the context is completely different so just to take an example of what i sort of mean by this and this is from a philosopher called michel serre if if we take the the idea of love right mm -hmm. some people will take the idea of love and they'll they'll analyze it via the science the language of science they'll say oh it's a certain amount of chemicals it's a certain amount of this 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 and this just going on in your body and that's all love is but mm. equally we all hopefully would understand what it is to love someone is a completely different experience mm -hmm. and the two forms of language can't be conflated they're not the same at all and it, this is a huge problem with truth because when we're speaking about god often you're subsuming that experience into a language of say science which isn't really compatible with it it's a it's a whole other thing so i mean in terms of this like attempting to find truth 
what what can the answer be with respect to language and all these different contexts to to find a way to actually say look this is the truth out, outside of someone's personal subjective language yeah i mean look at this in, in two ways so if you're just by yourself and whatever you're thinking whatever you're believing and however you're acting on, on top of that it is is pretty irrelevant to anybody else right so it becomes relevant as soon as you engage um, with another person right so and what's interesting there is my, my thesis there is if the two of us or any two people were sitting in the same little boat in the middle of the ocean i think they would have a lot of agreements and very few disagreements right so they would have a lot of agreements towards okay we see land over there let's row over here and we have one bottle of water. I think we're going to share that until we reach land and so forth. The point there being is that the main problem that we have is that we don't have this shared reality anymore. right? So that, that we kind of splintered reality in all these facets and that uh, where we actually living all in the same reality. Like we're all breathing air. We all have to drink water. We, we all need to eat. We all want to be healthy and so forth. So 99.9%, I think really that humans are in agreement, right? And you can figure this out by just putting them into a scenario where all these distractions that um, culture and societies impose on you are fading away and all of a sudden you realize yeah you're, you're a human being I'm a human being and if we have a monkey in the boat he is pretty much the same uh, as we are so at that point in time we can agree on pretty much everything and if you want to spend your time praying to to some some deity once a day so the other person probably don't mind and doesn't mind because the overall objective is simply to live another day and or not suffer right and if not suffering includes talking and praying to the deity so be it right i i wouldn't mind and i assume most people wouldn't mind in this particular scenario but once you introduce all these let's call it distractions from your environment, it's pretty easy to then focus on the wrong thing rather than focus on the thing that unites us. So that is actually at the core of like this idea that I put out in terms of how we should fix information management, right? So to, to start um, with a principle that, hey, we should be living in a shared society. And I think I, we talked about this last time when I was a child growing up, everybody around me and specifically my, I remember my grandfather he would always watch the same news as everybody else there were two and a half channels at the time on tv and one channel at eight o'clock had the news and everybody watched this 10 minutes of, of national news and then five minutes of international news and that was the shared reality i know what's going on and there, there, there was no agenda in in the news this was public television so they just reported on the facts that, that happened, they, they, they didn't give it any color. There was no commentary. It was just simply the facts of the day that happened uh, across the day. So there was shared reality. And now reality has been broken into a billion small pieces and everybody can just bury themselves in that reality that's been created around them. them. And the unfortunate part is there's a lot of, a negative actors within that space and some of them are intentionally negative as in hey i don't want you to see things right 
Uh, there are certain nation states that you obviously know of that just don't want you to have certain information because with that information, that particular nation state government thinks, okay, you might uh, act out against um, our style of government and you, you might realize that you are less free than other nations and so forth. So the point there being is once you disseminate information, and I think I mentioned that, so we're, we're working this, with this one NGO, all, all they're doing is translating information uh, from English into that nation state's language, I won't mention it here, uh, and then provide it in a form that's accessible to them because that particular nation state is filtering reality for citizens within that state. So they keep them in this false narrative of this is the real world. When there's a lot of variations on, on the way that people live and um, a lot of people, if they knew about it, would choose not to live in that nation state or not accept this particular reality on offer, right? So that's why I think that the most important task that we can do is break down these walls and, and get everybody to live in shared reality. And I'm just super mad about uh, large scale companies that are filtering the web, for example, and then uh, allow these narratives to exist and to be enforced. It, it's, a, it's a crime against humanity. I, I can't think of anything uh, more destructive th that you could possibly do. I mean, it's the same thing that totalitarian governments do. And whatever the intention, on, and even if the intention is just that we provide certain information to increase shareholder value because our model is based on click-throughs and uh, other KPIs to just keep you engaged this time on site and reaching time on site by polarizing the discussion, Th that should not be possible, right? That that should not be a viable business model today because the externalities that we're seeing, that we can measure, are horrendous. I think there's that it's hard to see anything worse outside of like maybe polluting all natural water, water sources. But if you're polluting all information flow, right? So you're actually doing something way, way, way worse. And we're doing this at scale. And... This has been obvious to me for more than a decade, so that there's still no large outcry. There's some outcry now, right? So we, we see government agencies dis discussing the behavior of certain for-profit organizations that ha have externalities for these governments, right? But what we don't really discuss is what externality does it have on humankind at large and on society at large. That, that is a secondary discussion. And that should be the primary discussion, right? So it's like the first thing should, should be like the the same uh, with the ethos in, 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 in uh, the medical profession. The, your first objective is do no harm, right? And you are responsible for the information that you're putting out. You're responsible for the information that you're distributing. So that's why for me, the call to action for a long time has, has been is like, create these tools that measure these externalities and attribute them to the individuals and entities 
that facilitate that, right? So hold companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth responsible for the amplification of certain information, right? And and not in kind of the censorship way, but in the sense of, okay, did you profit from that? And did you know that this had these particular externalities? And if you didn't know, was it willful ignorance or... Uh, is is this just like benign negligence? But I think what we find is there's this typical threshold in the legal system. System, if it's gross negligent, if you should have known that this this externalities exist and you, you had the resources, you had the mechanics to measure these externalities, you're responsible, right? And so, so to me, it's it's very hard to find arguments uh, against the fact that these companies that make billions of dollars on a monthly basis from these behaviors that, that they don't have the means, the technologies and the insights to not measure these externalities. That that seems uh, pretty absurd as a, as a thesis of defense. Right? I, I, I don't buy that. And that no one is pointing this out. And by no one, I, I mean, let's call it regulators and tell them, okay, uh, we do the opposite in this particular case because the responsible uh, responsibility is so large because you're dealing with a commons that you have to prove that these externalities that we can measure are not caused by you. Prove to us that you did everything in your power that these externalities do not happen, right? That people are not being misinformed, that, that people cannot find information to harm themselves, cannot find information that are factually untrue. And uh, that is rather easy to do, in my opinion. Right? So if part of the challenge, you mentioned the medical imperative of first do no harm. I think what you're describing also has a legal correlation and the idea that it's better that 10 falsehoods go free than one truth be suppressed. Would you mm -hmm. say that kind of lines up? The part of the challenge with, or maybe even the essence of the challenge with regulating the information that bodies like Twitter and Google and Facebook amplify or allow to spread is, well, I just had it. Well, I, I would simply, the, the mandate would not necessarily be to regulate, but the, the mandate okay. would, would start simply with measuring, right? You want, because they measure all, everything else, think about it, right? So they measure click-through rates, they, they measure how certain colors affect people and so forth. So you you should also measure these externalities. That, that's your job, just like you, yeah. you have to measure the emissions of the cars that you produce. And if they don't, fall under certain standards, well, you don't get to sell the car into our country because it pollutes too much. So I don't see there's any different uh, from the spread of information. If I can measure that the information has certain externalities, at that point in time, I can say, well, uh, these externalities, let's discuss how we can mitigate this. Well, maybe we mitigate this by making sure that at the end of the day, we can attribute information to a particular source and it can't be just an army of bots that amplify certain things because there's no one at the end of the day to hold accountable for. And that doesn't ha mean that there has to be like a first and the last time attached to every, any message. But what it means is that ultimately someone is responsible for that particular content. And you as the user of this commons, of the user of the information distribution 
education system should have the option to decide, well, if no one um, takes responsibility, if there's no uh, uh, attribution to a particular individual or entity for certain content, well, I don't want to even see it, right? That then just give me a button that says, well, if, if, if there's no attribution for this particular piece of information, I'm not interested in seeing it, right? So it's like, uh, it's like the difference between having a textbook and you have references in the back and a, and a fairy tale, which is just all made up stuff. You should have the, the choice. Okay, I want to, today I want to spend my time in fairy tale land and tomorrow I want to just have fictions. And typically, People are interested in in reality, right? So if I if I quote unquote Google for what is the best X Y Z toothpaste and so forth, there there are um, certain criteria available uh, to science and uh, at that point in time also to the person that's or the entity that's aggregating the information to uh, create some objectivity or at a minimum. Uh, reference the, the particular sources and then everything that doesn't have a reference because it's just advertising copy, it's just um, motivated information. Well, I want to be able to discard that, right? Because, yes, if it's kind of a fashion statement, that's one thing, okay? That, that I can have very different opinions, but um, there's no uh, um, opinions to be had from different people that think I can pray my particular disease away and I shouldn't uh, do certain procedures because it violates my God. There, there is factual reality that has certain consequences and they should not be able to am amplify the opposite, quite, quite, quite frankly, right? So I don't see how that's justified. The, pro the problem here is that you have to get everyone to agree upon the structure of what is factual right so i mean i'll 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 put my i'll put my neck on the line right i'm not a i'm not a flat earther just put that out there but if you are trying to prove factually right this is completely incorrect you'll once again have to get them to agree to your own structure of proof and if, if what if someone just simply says like i just fully don't agree with the entire structure of how you you say things are factual because i mean it, it, it the, the problem here is like an age-old philosophical problem of how do you actually prove something is entirely true and then how do you spread that if i I've, tell me if i'm capturing what you're saying right james that like censorship is in a way embedded in the notion of facts and if we're going to enforce facts or prevent misinformation then we're going to have to censor it's the same phenomenon yeah, so uh, it's a it's a multi tiered effort. As in, yes, you you want to build your own um, uh, let's call it opinion. You, you want to build your own thesis on on facts, but you also want to build your own thesis on um, the sources, right? So you, you want to be able to identify and say, okay, so this is the overall thesis, and these are the sources that support this, and these sources are also supported by other sources. And so that that will allow you to make a better decision because I, I don't think you, you see your hairdresser to ask her for a prescription uh, on your cough or something, right? You seek out an expert, right? And uh, to the extent that this is true for any information, you want to be able to attribute this to these particular sources. It, it's not about like censoring anything. It's about giving you all the tools to make an educated decision, and which includes the, the, the root of the, uh, of the information and how it was 
assembled and derived, right? So the the typical example here is on NASA aggregates all the information on um, anthropomorphic global climate change, right? And so you will see this overwhelming uh, support throughout scientific efforts that um, there's causality but, uh, between um, human action and um, industrialization and the changing climate. And then you have like two descents from that, right? So that you got this overwhelming body, but then the way it's being presented is kind of that's on equal footing, right? So it's not on equal footing. It's like, well, we got an overwhelming scientific body that uh, spent hours and years and decades and uh, doing drillings in, in ice and uh, pr proving chemically that certain uh, things have changed over decades. And then you got these other people that simply say, no, climate is always changing and there were ice ages and there were hotter times and so forth. So like, that's not the point, right? It's like, did you actually go through a th certain effort to disprove your own thesis or not? Or, or is it just an opinion? If it's just an opinion, then I'm probably not as interested in in your opinion than I am in the people that spend their life researching things and and put capital and and time on the line in, in order to disprove their own ideas, right? So that just has more merit. That's all, right? It to me, it's always a matter of percentages. So I I don't think there's any value even in in talking about capital T truth at all. It, it's it's all whatever we know today. To, today we know that the smallest thing that we can measure are I think quartz or something. I'm really bad in physics actually, but uh, and be, before that we thought it was atoms and before that we didn't know that atoms existed and so forth but and at the end of the day these are all concepts anyway right so this is just our poor way of explaining things right i don't think that we are that evolved yet to even have an understanding we, we don't uh, know how most things in the universe actually work right most things are still are absolutely uh, a, a mystery to us which is fine right but um, you don't want to build your ideas on top of a mystery. You want to uh, um, build your ideas on a thesis that you can disprove. So, because uh, it's like the typical idea of if I want to get to Paris, right? Uh, the first thing that I need to do is is not buy a plane ticket. The first thing I need to do is establish where I am. If I don't establish where I am, I, I have no idea how to get to Paris. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you won't get there. And so that's why most people already fall short. They don't establish where they are. Right? And a lot of times it's actually a very easy exercise to do. It's like, where am I? The, as in, what are the things that I believe to be true today? And why do I believe those? And that's my starting point. And so we, we try this to do here with whatever technologies we're developing by simply trying to take a snapshot of what is today. Then maybe we'll we'll go back in time to see a certain trajectory, and then we're trying to pull this forward five, ten years from now. It's like if we keep on this trajectory, where does it go, and how do certain things that are the polar opposite will will change things? And those are the most interesting theses. Uh, thesis. That's an E. To, to hold, right? So where are uh, these entire paradigm shift? And, but this nonlinear thinking is, is very much um, very much not part of human nature, right? So people think very much in linear fashion. They're, 
people have a very hard time uh, understanding exponentials, right? So it's the typical case where if you fold a newspaper a thousand times, uh, how high do you think it's going to be? Well, um, the the answers uh, will reach from here to to the moon, and but for most people, that's utterly counterintuitive, right? Because exponentials is, is not part of our thinking what we think very very linear and there's very few people can can do this and even fewer can do this persistently right they can see something as exponentially changing there's a there's a good you brought in the word uh, disprove there though and um, that that science basically should begin from the position of here's our thesis our task should be to disprove this. If we can't disprove this, then we've got a, we've got a fact. It's not a thesis, yeah. If it's yeah, yeah. So, but it's you, you also said that you respect people who put capital behind things. And I, one thing that's interesting here is it seems, and I, you know, this is something that came up last time that you brought in, is that much of contemporary science is actually doing the opposite in that they have motivated reasoning. And that yeah. once there is a certain amount of capital behind things, same with yeah. corporations online, that actually opinion overrides fact and they're no longer trying to disprove but actually they're trying to prove and it doesn't matter what the data says they'll find some way to askew it yeah and that's an externality um, largely of capital formation as one part right if, if and partially it's kind of the what we call the publication bias right you're trying to find something and if you don't find it uh, you try harder because you got a grant for that or something to that extent or you you spent the last uh, 10 years of your life and of your company's money uh, developing a, a certain drug or a certain tool it, it, it's going to be very hard to just say yeah well, we tried this and there's no way it's ever going to work but we'll have this particular outcome here and this is what we end up selling right so there are certain things that don't work well in our uh, in our idea of capital formation right and you, you see this in our broken sick care system right so uh, um we don't have a healthcare system in the United States. I think that's undebatable. We're just treating the symptoms, but we're not actually doing the obvious thing, which is simply indoctrinating um, individuals, and they're specifically children, into uh, um, the, the reality that certain behaviors learn, uh, lead to certain outcomes. Right. So if I eat junk food every day of my life and I'm eventually obese and I have certain symptoms, th that is not a mystery. Right. The, the, that, that is the consequence of um, my lifestyle. And once you indoctrinate this and uh, tell people, well, you're responsible, it's like you're, uh, th there's no one else responsible, but that's your starting point and you hold people accountable to that, right? So th there's the things that you can't influence that are based on your genes and whatnot, and there's a lot of things that you can influence. And now the majority of people in the United States um, fall into the obesity spectrum. There's a, a tremendous amount of people that have diabetes because of their lifestyle and society at large is carrying that. But also the other externality of that is these people are going to be less productive. These people uh, will spend less time uh, questioning certain ideas and so forth because they simply don't have the, the uh, energy, the mental resources to also at, uh, contribute to to these intellectual efforts at this point in time, and, and it's, it's all interconnected, right? So you, it's a symbiosis of our society. It's a symbiosis of, of the system. So that's why, in my mind, the the, the initial years of a child should should be spent one hundred percent on critical thinking and and just 
making sure that, that they can be responsible for themselves as a starting point. And if and when and where that's no longer possible because the idea of work is changing and whatever, then as a society, we need to step in. But this needs to be our starting point right? in, in order for us to survive as a species because what we're doing right now is kind of this idea that I call learned helplessness, right? So where a lot of people will, will just capitulate and don't think that, that they have uh, any power over their life in in a lot of areas of, of daily living where they think, well, I, I, I just can eat junk food and I just have to take this particular medication. And once you realize, no, 90% uh, of your outcomes will always depend on you and probably more like 99%. Right? But... Again, it all starts in, in your early childhood and w with these filters. And, and unfortunately, in, instead of giving uh, people the tools, uh, what we do is we indoctrinate them in certain ideas. So uh, I'm a big proponent of just penalizing these obvious outcomes, as in let's make everything that is beneficiary for human well-being tax-free and let's tax everything that's up. I mean, we're already doing this to some extent, right? So we're taxing tobacco, we're taxing alcohol, uh, we're taxing gasoline and there's horrendous tax on all of those. But then we're doing other nonsense that we're, we're taxing income. So we're t taxing productivity. That's obviously nonsensible, right? And then overall what we need to come to grips with is that the, the current state that people accept it as being the truth that you have to have a job and work from nine to five for example that is a fleeting moment in time right so the, the, for most part of human history that obviously hasn't been true and you already see this disintegrating right now on a daily basis right and i i think the vast majority of the population hasn't realized that yet right so that what we call uh, today the gig economy that that's actually the real economy right so so whatever actually adds to productivity uh, this will be the norm for most uh, sectors of economic productive um, activity right the, that's not the exception right so right now a lot of people think this is the exception and maybe even like a fleeting thing but uh, that's utterly not true because that used to be the norm Right. So be, before we uh, started industrialization, um, before um, we ever came up with this idea of factory work and uh, division of labor and so forth, division of labor ultimately will mostly be done by quote unquote machines. Right. So everything that you can divide into smaller and smaller tasks and um, decentralize and ultimately automate, it will ultimately be automated. Right. Like now, I mean, you probably saw that in Japan, they are fully automated dentists. There's no, there's, it's a complete robot. You just sit down and <laughs> it's a dentist robot. Right? So, but um, we see on a daily basis, like uh, the things that we are looking in, in technology investing, there's ideas that are taking hold now that will displace entire disciplines. That's why I said well, we need to close all law schools. Now there's no reason for them to exist. We need to uh, create entirely different disciplines um, that actually cater to the reality of today and um, the future that we see clearly for, before us, right? So our task as we see is to basically foretell the future within our little niche and our little niche just just happens to address all of economic activity right so all, all the fundamentals of uh, economic activity 
that we focus on. So that's why by default we take on a global perspective. Right? So these have to work globally and they have to be accessible to every single person. So which comes back to that earlier point of, of information. So the, the threshold for anything that we call information technologies has to be, can it be used um, by an individual that lives in a circumstance where his particular environment, i.e. his government, doesn't want him to have this particular piece of information. So if your technology facilitates that and information can be value, right? So most of, of digital um, entries uh, uh, signify value entries, right? So it could be valued in dollars, could be valued in Bitcoins, but it's, it's information, it's information of value. So if that person, uh, if that person that is living under these constraints is unable to use Bitcoin, is unable to use Ether, is unable to use certain identity protocols, is unable to access certain information, then this particular technology is not suitable for anybody. Right? So, so that, that's my threshold for technology. And so the, I, that's where I kind of draw this binary line. So I have a huge list of like business models and technologies that in my mind are not viable, right? Because they put humans um, uh, into a position where they are oracle functions of the network rather than agents within the network. They're no longer the endpoints. And right now we are not the endpoints, right? So we are simply pawns where the network observes our behavior, stores the data, distributes the data, copies the data, and then spits back a response. Um, and that response is based on the interest of a second entity that's not us. So it's it's never based on what we are trying to achieve, either intentionally or emotionally or uh, for any other motivation. So whenever you interact with technology and information technology in particular, you're typically not the agent, right? Un unless it's something entirely mechanical, right? But as soon as you're dealing with quote unquote data, um, you're right now in a way the victim, right? So, so you are the one that's being manipulated into only seeing certain things and then based on these certain things being driven down typically a particular a chain of actions, right? Click on this, click on this, click on this, or oh, this is how you derive there. And to me, that has always been observed from day one. The, the first time I, I did a search for I want the best healthcare plan and all I, I, all I saw was advertising copy and you could click 10 pages down and still only advertising copy. There's no information that, that uh, is being generated or made visible for that matter by uh, uh, someone who or an entity that actually just collects the information for the purpose of providing this particular answer, what is actually best by these particular criteria, that still doesn't exist. So as far as I'm concerned, we should have many, many, many search engines, right? Search engines for for healthcare, search engines for law, search engines for nutrition, search engines for everything. and uh, uh, there, um, the, the, the motivated reasoning should not occur, right? So it, it should always be based on references and it should always be peer reviewed. And it's, it's mind boggling that this is not happening because it seems like such an obvious thing to do.
I I love that vision of the attribution of uh, sources and the chains all the way down, and have, being able to see how the network channels you into various paths. And I agree that that's something to replace with something where the humans are the agents, and we have more control and insight into things. Uh, but motivated reasoning has as ancient psychological roots as mm -hmm. anything else that we face. It doesn't seem like something that's just going to be eradicated, but something that somehow we have to live with or corral into something more uh, productive so that when we're, we're, we're always going to be motivated to reason in a certain way. David Hume, for example, says reason is a slave of the passions. Mm. I want to kill this guy. And then I come with 500 reasons why it's justified. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, you know, the, the conclusion, it tends to be predetermined and especially uh, this, this is no less true for the super educated because this is a, an emotional issue. Especially right? actually funny enough. Yeah. Right. So there's not really an escape. There's yeah. not really a population to whom this does not apply. So just, you know, setting people aside and making them philosopher Kings isn't going to work. Setting scientists aside and making them decide everything isn't going to work. Yeah. Leaving it to the public by itself isn't, isn't going to work. There has to be some sort of way to take the motivation that's already going to be behind reasoning and make it useful, make it less of an inhibition uh, between us and reality. Well, I, I think that's, uh, it solves itself as in, if you make decisions on reality, you long-term, you will just have better outcomes, right? So yeah. in terms yeah. of, if you make financial decisions that are based on your belief that X, Y, Z will go up, uh, that usually doesn't happen this way, right? So that there's facts and reality that contribute to this particular movement. But uh, you always want to go back to first principles, right? So, and um, I do this on a daily basis with projects that pitch us. And so, what's very important to me is then just to see what are the uh, what are the principles that you applied. So I just had this discussion again this morning. People take this big set of solutions and they don't ever look behind it and see, okay, well, why does this solution exist? And so the two examples that I have been discussing at ad nauseum is like these topics of know your customer, which doesn't exist, by the way. It's, it's just a made-up term. Uh, it's much more nuanced. And, and then the other ideas are all around this topic of identity, right? So, so this, this morning I have this paper here, this like from a very large company, right? That, that, uh, has come up with these ideas on how you should co do quote unquote identity management. And I think we, we talked about this before, this is a nonsense term, but uh, more importantly, if, if you start out with a definition of that and then you build your technology on top of this like ostensibly wrong definition that is, doesn't relate to reality, that doesn't actually influence um, meat space in, in any shape or form, right? At that point in time, your solution that you're building on top of that is most likely not going to be viable, right? It's like saying, well, water is not wet. That's my assumption, right? So... I'm making the assumption that the identity is X. And uh, if that's not actually the, the problem that you're solving, uh, then everything else is mute. It's like the typical thing in our 
space here is the whole idea that people keep focusing on, on banks as being the problem. I agree that banks are a problem. Overall, we don't need any commercial banks from a technology perspective. But the thing to focus on is what problems do banks solve right now because they're being used by people. So what is the problem that the banks are solving? Then solve the problem better, meaning don't solve for the bank. So for the actual problem that people are having, that's why all these discussions around the, these new ideas of central bank digital currencies are emblematic for this um, non-principled thinking because they, they, they keep discussing things like cross-border payments and payment functions and so forth. None of us has problems with paying, right? The payment, payment is a solved problem for all intents and purposes. What, what is the problem that people have with, with fiat currencies? The, the main problem that people have with fiat currencies is it, it's a loss in purchasing power. So that's the problem you want to solve for. <laughs> but obviously, um, if you're the one that's issuing these inflationary currencies, it, it, you're not going to see this as a problem, right? So you're not going to solve for that, right? So, uh, so someone else will solve for that. And we're already seeing that. That's why the first thing that I always tell people I'm in a lot of these discussions around CBDCs is you're not talking about the actual problem. There's no 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 value in, in us having a discussion with you because the problem of payments is a non-problem for me and for most people around me there are 15,000 ways of of solving that and even though from a technical perspective fiat never settles from from the consumer's perspective it settles instantly i swipe my credit card i swipe my debit card and as far as i'm concerned it's settled right so I'm, I'm moving on with my life i don't think about the fact that there's 15 different legal agreements i just entered into a new one that doesn't really matter for for my life right so the, the ability to take a step back and analyze the real problem and then actually formulate a problem statement is entirely absent from government, right? You don't ever see that. They, they never take this first principle stand because it comes back to the other topic we were just talking about healthcare. It's like, what is the actual problem, right? What is the systemic, obviously measurable problem, right? So how do we address that? And so maybe we address that with information campaigns and maybe the information is specifically targeted to a certain age group of people that are very, um, very much influenced by these other information advertising that entices them to drink sugary water and eat fried food and, and so forth. So maybe we should penalize that behavior because it has certain outcomes. But the point being is you just want to take a snapshot and say, okay, from first principles, why do we have these outcomes? So this is the, the state of the nation, right? So the state of the nation is not, not the typical thing that the president says where everything is hunky-dory. The state of the nation is most people are sick to some extent. A lot of people have an addiction to something. Uh, a lot of people spend a lot of their time uh, just browsing the internet, looking at nonsense, and uh, that has a certain root cause and ha has a certain externality and so forth and so forth. These are all measurable things, right? So it's it's not like these are mysteries. These are all very much things that are um, accessible um, to objective reality can be measured and you can draw straight uh, lines from particular behaviors to particular outcomes, right? So I'm I'm consistently dismayed when I enter these discussions that the, and then they don't want to talk about the actual problem, right? That, that happens consistently, right? 
Uh, I and um, ever since I turned fifty, uh, I have no more patience for that. It's like I will I will just call it as I see. It's like you're not talking about anything relevant. Let's talk about what's actually relevant because if we keep talking about that, nothing's gonna change. Whatever you're spending your time on is gonna be a waste of your time. So like go back to the basics. I don't care if you spent the last thirty years of your life in banking. I don't care if you spent the last year. Uh, 30 years of your life researching this one particular problem in, in science and nutrition. It's like, just measure what we have right now. That's your starting point every single day. Don't don't argue against observable reality, right? And yeah, anyway, so larger point there being is um, that should be our basis for, for any discussion that we're having, right? And, and that's that's not happening. We We need kind of the B-roll of um, reality in, in Congress that first says, well, this is observable reality. This is how many people are, are sick right now. And we can um, uh, chart this back to these particular behavior and this particular behavior is facilitated by this particular messaging. So let's do something about the messaging, which at the end of the day is the root cause, right? So to, to me, it's like advertising doesn't even have to exist. Why, why should it exist? Right? So um, specifically, maybe uh, it's okay if it exists for, for fashion and other things that are kind of extra and voluntary and uh, a statement of my personality. But in, in terms of things that we consume, in, in terms of uh, things that are objectively harmful and measurably harmful, so that should not be something... Uh, that should be promoted without a penalty, right? And without accountability. Why should that happen? As, as I said, I mean, we're already mitigating against in some areas. Why, why aren't we mitigating against that in all areas? Right? Yeah, I think the sort of archaic incentive systems that we're building all this modern infrastructure on is the only reason I can imagine why there's such this a giant mismatch between the way politicians and regulators are supposed to serve the public and how distant they are from achieving that stated goal, that explicit goal. Another example of what you're describing with the, you know, the obvious behaviors leading to the obvious results is if you go into most restaurants and and buy a drink, you know, they have the little machines that have eight options. Well, seven of them are are basically sugar mm -hmm. and, and syrup of some kind. There's, mm -hmm. And that's usually the least expensive thing. So anyone who's in a position of poverty will have a far easier time surviving by making themselves worse health. It's sort of, it's sort of like a debt. It's like a health debt. People yeah. go into debt to pay their bills. People go into health debt to stay alive if they're poor. Yeah. And this sort of debt is... Uh, pervasive in in kind of every single industry or area of life, and there has to be some kind of fundamental incentive restructuring for that to change. Because while that's still the case, politicians are still going to be oriented to their goals: get you know vote debt, get confidence debt, make deal debt, get you know corruption debt. That the same the same sort of failure mode is, is built into the whole system and it's at it's at the point where the flaws in the metaphor are outweighing the benefits that it was instituted with in the first place yeah 
I mean, I, I think the good news here is that we start to decentralize all of these information systems, right? So that you're less and less um, will be forced into just doing consumption in a very particular way. You, you'll be less and less forced to buy into false narratives, into like the fiat systems overall. And I'm not limiting that necessarily to, to fiat currencies, but anything that by decree um, govern, governments uh, around the world um, put forth as an idea of living, right? So just the, and the thing is, all these alternatives have been available to everybody at all times. It's just um, they weren't um, really made made popular and weren't, weren't really made visible, right? So the typical examples would be um, international corporations that pay no tax, right? So everybody complains about that, but uh, it's like a great example of how everybody should be living, right? So you should always do this type of arbitrage where uh, governments should provide you with a service, right? And if you don't like their particular service or you think it's overpriced, then, uh, then you should be able to get a different one, right? You should have choices in that regards and uh, governmental systems and, and fiat and so forth should be competing for that, right? Money should have always been competing for being uh, available at scale to anybody on the planet. If I want to live my life in a different quote-unquote fiat currency, that should be simply possible, right? As, as a matter of fact, because to me, like um, my self-expression, my, my language and so forth um, is actually superseded by the way that I allocate capital, right? So the way I want to express myself in commerce is as much protected by free speech as, as the things that are coming out of my mouth and the things that I'm publishing, right? So um, it should have the exact same um, protection and we should have the enablement to allow anybody to express themselves in this particular way. So if I tomorrow start wanting to oppress myself and express myself in British pound sterling or in, in in Bitcoin, so far, that the government should not be able to do anything about this. To the contrary, it, it should enable that. Right? It, it's a, it's a, the responsibility of the government to to protect freedom, right? Not not to encroach on it. Right? So, and part of living in a free society is that you can say what you want um, up to the limit where it's harming other people and that you can do what you want up to the level that it's harming other people. And you choosing to express yourself in another currency is, is not harming anybody but government. But, well, government should be working for you, not the other way around, right? So it's a function of society. It's it's not an entity. So that's one of the usual fallacies in in speech that people typically do, they say government does X, Y, Z. No, government doesn't do anything, right? So it's people that are employed by government agencies and uh, the interests that standing behind them that initiate and do something, right? So governments are simply functions. They're functions of society. So once you embrace that notion and you find yourself in a position where you think these are government services and uh, I can decide I want to use this government service or I, I want to pick a different government for this particular service, i.e. healthcare. It's like, I don't like the healthcare here. It's like, I want to subscribe to, to that of Singapore and um, I, I want to subscribe to the service providers in the United States that subscribe to that same idea where this is privately 
organized, regulated, and everybody somehow seems to be healthier because of that, right? So the point here being is we have all these working models. Right? So we can look around the world and see what models um, lead towards human flourishing. And we can see the models that definitely don't lead to human flourishing. Right? I think we'll have a hard time finding anybody who wants to live in North Korea and you'll have a hard time uh, getting people um, convinced that live here right now to, to move to China and subscribe to the idea that all of your financial movements and your personal movement uh, should be monitored and sanctioned even when and where it doesn't comply with what um, the quote-unquote government thinks is uh, the right uh, way of living, right? So and the point there being is we, we kind of make that concession and say, well, they're doing something wrong, as in they're disappearing their billionaires and they're, they're eroding um, the capital accumulation by large companies because they are stepping into private commerce and so forth. But the thing is, um, every government is doing this to some extent, right? So, uh, and you should be the one, meaning the individual should be the one that, that can pick and choose and say, well, this is an extent I don't like, and this shouldn't have to translate into I have to physically move my body, right? So, because most things that you do now, they don't require you to be at a certain place, right? Uh, we're both living in California. We both choose to be here, and we're paying the price for that, right? So, we're paying this uh, enormous toll that people in in Nevada don't have to pay, right? So. Uh, and but we made this particular choice. The, the, the question is, and now fewer and fewer people make that choice because uh, the trade-off is just too, too big to them. But it, it's a choice that they don't ha should have to make, right? They, they should say, well, I declare that I'm now a citizen of Nevada. I'm, I'm still going to live here, but I subscribe to this idea of governance, right? And governance is a service, right? It's a service to me. And... Uh, let's just vote on that and I shouldn't have to vote by actually physically going there right the, that that's a different type of vote and yeah that, that is utterly bizarre to me and there specifically the the whole notion of a, um, capital distribution by government force that, that is an absurd idea, right? So it's destructive on so many levels. E, the, the capital allocation that I would have done myself would always been more, more charitable and more efficient than whatever government entity could ever uh, assume. And plus, simply by doing the redistribution, they're destroying anywhere between 10 and 15% of that actual productive behavior, let alone the externalities of, of having to maintain all these oversight mechanisms, right? There, there is no reason for internal revenue services to exist at all, right? So uh, the, these, these ideas of uh, flat tax have been made since the 80s and are utterly sound, right? So it's utterly obvious that the way it should be done is that we should simply tax consumption. And the thing is, but instead, we we made up the, this kind of cumbersome bulwark of nonsense taxation systems, i.e. people say there's um, business tax, for example, right? 
there is no such thing. That's nonsense. Because so if a business has to pay XYZ sales tax or something like that, they're just tagging it on and you see it on your receipt. So it's it's not business tax. So there's they're double taxing your income that's already has been taxed, right? So on and on top of that, as an externality, now they're making the business a tax collector. Uh, so it, it is wrong on so many levels and simply from a utilitarian perspective if you think about this we could get rid of this today and spare all these people from do all these nonsensible jobs that don't make anybody's life better like i don't think there's a whole lot of people that were born and at 12 years old they decided i want to be an accountant mommy or i want to be a forensic auditor or something it's like i don't think people aspire to do that right the, this is these are kind of these artificial functions that we created by government overhead and these misguided ideas that we should do wealth distribution through a mechanism we call governance right that is utterly absurd on on face value and we have seen this throughout history it's not like we we have to make this up um from the current state we can see throughout history wherever like more than half of the population is assigned to do non-productive activities eventually the system will collapse and we're pretty close to that right so where most people don't do anything that's actually resulting in product or a service that that serves someone else but is simply for uh, the measure of redistribution and it's unhealthy for that person it's unhealthy for society and it's mind-boggling to, to me that that we still have that right because yeah it's it's bizarre you must uh there's there's this brand new phenomenon of uh play to earn games blockchain based mm -hmm. games that pay you for playing them sure. and that just seems like kind of a a black hole of 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 effort like if if you're getting paid there's no reason to stop and then there's no yeah. you know product that comes out of it does that fall into this category of unproductive labor is it is it worse is it is this in the same sort of category that you were just describing yes and no so a i'm a big proponent of, of like games as far as they actually simulate um, real-world economic activity, i.e. what you see at scale in DeFi right now, it's it's basically a multi-massive online player game because it's only concerned with digital native assets. But since it's uh, at a certain scale, you, you can now measure what it would do in uh, real-world economic activity. So it's, it's a good testing and proving ground obviously that's what we do throughout um growing up right so we're playing but we're always kind of simulating reality so to the extent it does that i i think it's somewhat productive to the extent obviously that this is your entire life um that's somewhat questionable but then again if, if it makes you happy who am i to to judge right so i personally um haven't played many games since i was 12 really but uh and whenever i start one after about 90 seconds i find myself that to be not interested not intellectually engaged so i, I move to something else and I also feel guilty for like wasting my time I, I think there's so many more pressing issues but but yet again it's 
uh, there's probably more value in that particular activity and stress testing these these systems than anybody who is filing right now some tax return or doing some paper audit or uh, uh, writing some Sarbanes-Oxley report or creating some privacy policy that no one reads or what, whatever it is. So that there's many more activities that I would penalize before that, right? Yeah, there are at least two things I want to mention before 11. I know you have a hard stop. Uh, one is earlier you mentioned attention as was it as measured by time as being the most important yeah, metric? Yeah, attention measured by reason? time. That, that's yeah. I mean, I mean, there's you probably know the, the various science fiction uh, novels that were based on that, and some movies that were based on these. Models. Sure. So, right. so that that's that's our ultimate currency at the end of the day. Attention as measured in time is all. So how do we how do we? I, I I wanted to follow up on that and ask mm -hmm. you specifically how how do you get the best ROI for your attention? <laughs> oh wow so uh, that's a very layered answer so um a so so attention is obviously also influenced by your physical state right if if i wake up early and i'm, I'm drowsy and i try to be creative uh, that's going to be difficult right so uh, you want to uh, assign certain tasks that you're trying to accomplish at the peak of uh, your physical capability of uh, your capability to 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 focus and content and concentrate and you, you ideally want to calibrate and measure this particular behavior and and then organize your daily activity in, into these buckets so that you have a certain cadence so i get up every day at the same point in time i had it an ever-expanding supplement regime for, for decades and that allows me to be at a certain level of energy throughout about 18 hours of the day and be productive. And intermittently, there's these sequences where I realize, okay, I'm no longer productive and at that point in time, I do something that's just busy work, right? So I'll, I'll organize my office or something to, to that extent. But like the ultimate utility, um, you should just start out every morning just making a list of what you're trying to accomplish and you uh, should start out every month with what you're trying to accomplish that month. You should start every year with what you would try to accomplish every every year, right? And I've been doing this for a long time. So when I was, I think, 27, that occurred to me first. I, I spent a year of my life, well, not a year, but probably a better part of a year of my early 20s just finding a reason to to actually engage with society at all and and simply honestly not kill myself because i was just dismayed with the state of humanity at that stage of my life and eventually i came to the conclusion okay let, let's just keep busy and, and so i wrote down a, a list that an ever expanding list at the time that i kept in in a spreadsheet where i just set forth goals and i put put down timelines and that's the reason why I'm here alive and that's the reason why I'm be here, right? So I wrote down 287 things and then I accomplished uh, 200 some of those within a matter of a decade, right? And some of these things were absurd and, and some of these things in, looking back were childish and a lot of these things had simply to do with wanting to achieve certain material st um, states and so forth. And then eventually um, you'll have setbacks and you, you recalibrate and you realize, yeah, I, I don't need to, to have a sports car and another car and a house on a golf course and all, all these other things because uh, it turns out I, I can also live in a shack in, in the woods and 
be at the same state of happiness, um, just being productive by writing. And uh, that's how I fill my time. Um, but yeah, so you want to have goals that are worthwhile at the end of the day, right? And whatever is worthwhile to you might not be worthwhile to me and vice versa. My ultimate objective being very much uh, utilitarian if any label would, would be useful is simply that my, my starting point is how, how can I ensure that information flows in a way that we solving things that affect me and everybody else, i.e. how do we solve aging, right? So, and what can I contribute uh, with my resources um, in order to make that happen, right? Because for the longest time, we accepted this idea that you have to die, right? And I don't accept that idea. Um, we proved in the 40s that aging is a disease, right? We can keep cells alive in a petri jar forever, petri dish forever. And, and now there's actually a larger um, body of work behind that, entire um, life extension centers behind that. But uh, the thing is, it's, it's common sense that this is true, right? Because we have cells, certain people have certain cells that live forever. Unfortunately, uh, these are cancer cells, but uh, they, they provide the clue for that, that, that this is possible. So that's the ultimate scarcity. So when we fix that, then how do we fix the next ultimate scarcity, right? So how, how does everybody have access to clean water every day, right? That, that, that is such a crime, if you think about it. So if, if you think about uh, some people have to spend uh, hours of their day just to find some clean water every day, right? that, that's absurd at this stage that, that we don't solve for that. And instead we focus on, on all these other things. So the larger point here is um, you want to prioritize for yourself what's what's within your reach and how you want to spend your time. And ideally it's, it's worth worthwhile goals but uh, i'm i'm not the one to, to call them worthwhile it's it's up to you so i, I don't find it mo- I, I find most things not worth doing <laughs> right? so most, and, and that's the question you should always always be asking is it is, is it worth doing uh, i.e a good question to ask yourself is if i had a day to live would i be doing that right? uh, and if not you probably shouldn't be doing it right uh uh, yeah, it, that puts things in, into perspective, right? It's, it's hard to have a key, a key perspective and have perspective. That's what I was referring to earlier, right? So it's, it's very important to, to step step out and take on a global view. And I probably do this too much, to be honest, <laughs> to, to where I like disengage with things where it would be probably more valuable to to engage. But in my mind, I I see like the outcome of certain like technologies and so forth that I thought about and think, okay, yeah, I know where this is going. And I got, I know this is like a, like a lateral move rather than getting us closer where where we want to be. So I'm not actually interested in these lateral moves. So the, the one example, and that will, annoy a lot of people at this point in time is like the, the whole de- decentralized finance space. So the, the way um, these technologies work right now is, is very much the same. The legacy systems work in the sense of that they are extractive, right? So, and the larger point there, though, is that um, I think the overriding goal you want to um, uh, work backwards from is how do we definancialize the economy? 
right? So the question, uh, the, the problem statement you should have is like, okay, what, what parts of these systems are good and necessary and what parts are unnecessary? So if we're assigning 13.5% of GDP today to financial services, what is the right number for that? It's, it's probably not 13%. Uh, it might not be zero, but um, my like gut tells me it shouldn't be more than 1%, right? So that, because if you just simply look at all these functions, can I automate the, all of those functions for the most part? I can already see that, right? So we'll, we'll have large lending pools. They're completely automated. They're, they're, the challenges, they're limited to digitally native assets. So you, you should be working on that problem as in how can you bring real-world assets into the system, attach them to the system so that you don't need a middleman, that you don't need a commercial bank to create new money, but we can use the money that's already existing in the system and that would sustain the economy just fine and would mitigate against the externality of inflating this particular asset class and the secondary externality inflates broad money supply overall, right? And to, to me, these things are super obvious and uh, measurable, right? You, you can look at that. And so work backwards from there. So rather than um, Uniswap and so forth building up billion dollar treasuries and just sitting on it, it's like, how do you assign those to actually um, eliminate the fluff that we have in the actual real world economy right now, right? So that is a worthwhile task. Um, not that this intermediate state state doesn't have value. As I said, that comes back to it's really a multi-massive online player game at this stage, which has a lot of value. We should have done this for fiat currencies, play, play games first and see how they work out and then implement them in real world economic activity. But I think it's very important to keep in mind where you want to be going right and then where we are right now and so that's why certain discussions are simply not for me not 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 interesting because okay yeah yeah you you duplicated the existing system but you took this one element out but it actually has no um influence on meat space at this point in time so come back when it has influence on meat space and then i might be then then i'm definitely interested right but before that, I'm, I'm only so much interested in playing your particular game as long as it's extractive and resembles the legacy system. Anyway, that's just one example. There's lots. There's lots of examples on a daily basis. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I could be totally wrong, right? So <laughs> obviously, I could be entirely wrong about that. And maybe this is like the most relevant discussion to, to be had. But for me, it's it always sounds like a discussion around what what colors should my bytes be. I'm not interested in the colors of my bytes. I'm, I'm interested in uh, what velocity they have and if they actually make my life better on a daily basis and uh, then overall make people's lives better on a daily basis. And arguably, um, they, these systems make life better as an example, but not as a, on a, on a as a matter of practicality. There's limited utility today, unfortunately. Interesting. Yeah, I would at some point like to follow up on on what aspects of DeFi are uh, extractive or unnecessary. I've never really looked at that in depth necessarily, other than the credit uh, systems. But I wanted to ask first. You've said a few things that I want to link together. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking earlier about how uh, certain governments are disappearing their billionaires. And uh, you also said uh, that basically uh, 
every government is being oppressive and tyrannical and strange in some form or another of, of, of a similar nature. Yeah. And you also said far earlier that as you get older, you're becoming more provocative. I'm wondering if there's a Venn diagram in all three of those. What's, you know, what's the crazy, uh, what's, what's the crazy, craziest thing that you're, that you're comfortable thinking could be a valid hypothesis or working hypothesis. Are there, are there evil, evil men at the top, you know, pulling strings? Oh, I no. I'm, you know, what, what's, what's, what's going on here? No, no. So uh, I don't subscribe to any of these conspiracy theories, mostly because um, they are just not practical, right? From if you look at all of these, they, they require so much coordination and so many people in most cases, it, it doesn't hold up, right? So if GFK was being murdered by this conspiracy of dozens of people, one of them on their deathbed would have omitted that he was he or she was involved and we would know it factually and we would have concrete evidence. But the, the fact that this doesn't happen or ever happen leads you to the conclusion that these are just systems of time, right? So overall, like even I used to subscribe to the, this whole like uh, creature from Jekyll Island idea, right? Uh, and But it's very much a conspiracy. It's, it's like it was a system that was useful at the time and solved the problem at the time that, that is pretty much undisputable. It just has outlived its usefulness and doesn't account for the externality it has created. That's all there is. So, and overall, and that's my actually one of my larger hopes is like governments uh, are largely inept, right? So, so you you see this simply in how they um, maintain infrastructure, and you see this in the type of people that they put in positions of being able to make decisions uh, uh, and, and so forth. So my, my hope and my expectation actually is that governments at large will sort of by coincidence uh, defeat their own fiat systems because they're trying to do something better. They're being pressured by other nation states and creating digital bearer instruments. And uh, some of them will just by accident create it in a way that uh, leads to human flourishing and, and doesn't actually end up in a surveillance state. But again, it's not intentionally, it's, it's simply inaptitude. It's, it's simply the fact uh, that uh, they don't have access to the best resources. And then overall, what we're talking about is, is technology, which also complies to the loss of requisite variety from uh, evolutionary perspectives and, and pressures where the most flexible within a system will eventually rule the system. And so governments are not very flexible. So that's why even like the, the currency, the, the current discussions around the regulation of crypto and so forth. Yes, it's annoying that, that they're even discussing that. And it's like obviously misguided and is obviously not understanding these technologies and so forth. But then overall, um, the counterposition to that is, oh, well, we have thousands and probably more like hundreds of thousands of people that are developing these technologies and they're more likely to come up with solutions um, that uh, uh, for problems that regulation creates than the other way around, right? So that's why I'm not so worried in, in that regards. And that's why 
you, you can measure that, right? So the the internet, uh, I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure you remember that was was called the information superhighway. That was Bill Gates' idea, and the, the, he actually published a book under, under that title that he then tried to claw back. I still have the original copy with that title, but the point there being is he thought that Microsoft should be running that um, information superhighway, and so every web server would be a Microsoft uh, server. And obviously that hasn't happened, right? And um, if you go all the way back to why every most web servers right now run, let's say, Apache, that goes back to the idea that IBM was trying to sell a, a web server, right? And people started patching it and creating open source library, hence the name Apache. It's, it has nothing to do with the tribe. And and so, but the point there being is, so that is kind of an externality or like a observable reality of code development that actually resembles very much that of evolution. So it's the law of requisite, requisite variety in action where the most flexible is ruling the system. So the most flexible is, is the Linux operating system that, that's ruling the internet, right? So there's very few people that run commercial web servers uh, that they are paying for and most people just download apache or even just download an entire open source stack that facilitates that so the unfortunate thing that we haven't solved for is all the other pieces and the most important piece i I think uh, all the actual communication devices the hard and the hardware at the end right so we need to solve for, for these entry points because they uh, have been and uh, will for the time being a, a crucial break point for, the, um, for humans to protect themselves against government surveillance and they are specifically um, uh, nefarious government surveillance. And that's why we should think these things through in terms of we should have more open source hardware, we should foster that and then everything that we can, quote unquote, decentralize. I'm not such a big fan of that term, it leads to a lot of confusion, but uh, overall, a lot of these systems should be simply accessible to everybody for free, right? So because it's information technology, it's information itself. Information should be free, has been free. We're all living on the shoulders of giants. And to bottle this up and to allow uh, the way that like the Android system is being distributed now in this particular forced, force-fed way, is, it's really a crime, right? Because... Um, Apple does an okay job um, protecting uh, their individuals, but A, most people in in the the developing nations won't ever be able to afford an an iPhone. And and then also, overall, it should be a more open, not even platform, that's the wrong term, but a more open network that's accessible to everybody. There shouldn't be any gatekeepers like... um, Apple and so forth on there. You should have the choice. If I pay a thousand dollars for this device here, I should have the choice of uh, what type of operating system I want to run, what kind of security I want to run, whether or not I want to identify myself, whether or not I'm going to have a fixed IP and so forth. Because ultimately, and um, I'm, I'm sure you guys 
read George Orwell's books, and I was just looking at a summary of that again last night. Ultimately, that has always been the entry point for fascism and human suffering and, and wars to be able to control information. And so we have this duality of endpoints that are pretty trivial for governments to usurp, right? And we need to mitigate against that. So the call to action here would be to uh, companies like Google, like Apple to say, okay, you are the gatekeepers, the last gatekeepers once we decentralize um, network infrastructure that we call the World Wide Web today, the internet today. But now you are the one that are the bottleneck and you should start thinking about this right now, right? So when you buy your phone, you should get that option of, I want this totally decentralized. I want a number that I own that's not assigned to a nation state, which is a, a project we are working on right now. And um, there shouldn't be a way for people to track me, to identify me and so forth, because that comes back to the earlier uh, request. The hurdle is always, is this a technology, is this a utility that can be used by an individual in a state that is not as friendly as the one that I'm living in? And it's that is the worst of all states. And it should be usable by that person because otherwise I want to see the technology that invalidates that model, both from a technology perspective and more important from a business model perspective, because that that's your pressure angle, right? Once you invalidate the business model of selling data by making it really uncomfortable by starting to put people in prison who do that, people will stop doing it, right? So people who do this at scale today, for me, these are criminals, right? So that to, to sell personal identifiable data, aggregate personal identifiable data, allow people without my consent to create profiles from that and target me, even if it's just advertising, I don't care. Unless I have actively consented to that, you're violating my right spirit for stop and you, you should suffer the consequences for that. Right? And uh, I don't even see how anybody can dispute that. What is the argument for allowing this particular state of um, surveillance to be allowed? Uh, I mean, 99% yeah. and probably 100% of what, what you do with, let's say, your funds and whatnot doesn't deserve any scrutiny, right? So the, the, the world lives on, on open commercial activity that doesn't um, require financial surveillance, that doesn't require surveillance of who you are, what you do, and shouldn't, right? So the default should always go towards everything is private, anonymous, uh, unobserved and if it's being observed you need to have a very very good reason for that right so this, you need to show that there is harm and if you cannot show this on on the not not like like not not this catch all while we're doing kyc on everybody because there is 50 people in the world who do money laundering. However, the number really doesn't matter. But the point there being is you, you can't just assume that basically everybody is evil. And so we, we, it's like putting everybody by default in prison. It's like, yeah, we let you out, but you have to pr first prove that, that you're innocent. That's not how that works. And kind of that's uh, what we're allowing to happen with the flow of information and the flow of funds today. That is utterly absurd if you think about this, that this ever happened. The, the, the state of technology is such that perfect surveillance is 
absolutely at reach and already true for certain government agencies right now right so that is extremely dangerous extremely worrisome and has been worrying me for a decade or more right not because i want to do anything nefarious to the contrary <laughs> i i want to help those people uh, that do nefarious things because usually nefarious things uh, don't happen because people are born evil right they are they are doing nefarious things because they are in a certain situation where this is the only way to act to get out of this particular situation i break, not break into a house and steal something be, because i find that uh, exhilarating probably uh, most likely but, but because I, i'm under some form of commercial pressure right and that is true for, I, I would argue, 90 or 99% of people in the world. So the answer is not surveil everybody. The answer is not to put people in prison. The answer is always educate people and provide them with the things that they need to be happy. Right? And I don't see why we can't do this for every human being right now. Right. In my mind, we have the capacity, we have the resources, we have the technology to do this right now. We had it for some time. Yeah. So that and and so once you start thinking in, in these terms, then all of these nonsense discussions around well, you need to be do KYC and you need to do all these these other things they just become noise to you you realize okay you're talking about something that we will solve in technology and keep focusing on this nonsense but you're living in the past right and if you want to live in the past then you're eventually going to live in a very very ugly future right where everything resembles china or worse everything resembles north korea where everything that you read everything that you do is surveilled and censored and I don't think that anybody's living under those circumstances or anybody who is actually um, imposing these circumstances to uh, to the population at large lives a fulfilling life, right? And that's ultimately, I guess, what people want to do. Right? And, yeah, they're, they're all absolutely. acting. Yeah, I mean, every action is based on the idea that you're going to be happy afterwards. Right? That's the only reason why people act. Right? That's ultimately the only reason. I love it. I think that's a wonderful place to end on. Um, I feel there's a lot of philosophical alignment in that regard. And the, the, the human, human flourishing is not something that is, is difficult to solve technologically. It's difficult that's to coordinate. Not. It's difficult to get the, the will, the political and economic will directed in the right places. Yeah. Um, and partially is, is just um, long-term thinking. Right. Partially, it's just if everybody had the expectation that they would live forever and uh, be confined to this planet, I think uh, we everybody would act very differently. Right? It's like, yeah, I have to live with the consequences of my behavior today for the rest of my life. It's a, Buffett has this metaphor if you can only buy one car in your life. right? So how would you treat this car? Right? You would be very careful with that. But... Um, most people just don't have this very wide perspective. It's it's and it's very hard to instill this. Obviously, it's something you you get to over time. And I wouldn't say with age because I I don't think it's a it's really a matter of time. It's 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 mostly um, 
a matter of pressure and attention, right? Uh, change doesn't take time. Uh, change uh, takes motivation, right? So if you're yeah. motivated enough, you change. Cool. I believe that's a good place to finish up. Mike, have you got any more to say? Or we've got a pretty hard stop, I believe. Yeah, I'm I'm good, Chris. I want to make sure we let you go on time. Um, yeah, I'm I'm happy to sign off here. Yeah, Chris, yeah. thanks very much.